this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're back with what we like to call, quote-unquote, requested reviews. Requested, requested review. review. All right. Yeah, and uh, you know, Jay, over the years, although we are primarily focused on the sectors known as alternative and indie rock, we have delved into some other different genres we've done some uh experimental stuff we've done some yep. you know uh i don't know what you call the bowery electric uh, trip hop that was i think it was a trip hop record uh and then we've also done some metal jay mm-hmm. uh, we've talked about uh skid row corrosion of conformity their released uh, albums that they released in the 90s and this week thanks to a requested review we are checking out an album by a band <laughs> on a record label on a record from the United States in the 90s called Motley Crue with four guys <laughs> Who all have two hands. Who came together <laughs> to play instruments <laughs> on a record. Now you're turning to Casey Kasem. I, yeah, that did start going into Casey Kasem territory. Um, which, by the way, one of my favorite bits on Howard Stern in the last couple of years was Casey Kasem, after he died, like they didn't know where his body was, and he was calling in dead from the... <laughs> <laughs> from the road yeah. <laughs> the guy who did Casey Kasem's voice was really good right I, I'd always whenever there's a a joke on that show if you can mm-hmm. sell the impression like Sour Shoes does then, yep. then that makes it all the better oh yeah uh, so this week we're doing the 1994 self-titled Motley Crue record uh, this was requested by Luke um, Luke I'm gonna butcher your last name here Catcher Sky? Kachaskery? I'm sorry. I should have asked for a pronunciation. Luke suggested this record. Uh, it's a... Uh, it was a... Let me back up here. This is a... I guess you'd say a, uh, a transitional record for the man in the sense that Vince Neil, the longtime lead singer of the band, had been either fired or quit, depending on your... Uh, opinion or who's telling the story at this point so he was replaced by a gentleman named John Karabi so Jay you're you're more tuned into the um, you know the metal music more so than I was I was a metal uh, I was only a casual fan of yeah you know that that genre Um, Uh uh-huh can you tell me from your own personal experience uh, what was the the reaction when it was announced that Vince Neil was no longer in the band and that this guy named John Karabi, 
who I'm guessing a lot of people, you know, didn't know about. Yeah. Was now the lead singer. What was your impression at the time? Um, it was a little bit of a surprise because, uh, the Dr. Feelgood record was very, very, very successful. That came out five um, years earlier in 1989. It did. Yeah. They, uh, five singles, they I think. extensively for that. Yeah. It, and it had multiple singles. Um, so I, that, that was, a <clears throat> felt like probably a two year record mm-hmm. uh, cycle there. Then they did. Decade of Decadence record, which was basically a best of compilation, but it did feature um, a new single called Primal Scream, which was also huge. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of felt like, um, you know, that they were so successful, there's no way they would break up. Well, I think actually, in hindsight, when you look back at it, that's usually when most bands break up. <laughs> In terms of, you know, the egos get just huge. Um, I think they sense by this, you know, by the time Vince Neil leaves, you know, music is starting to shift. Um, He goes on and does a solo record. I think it came out before this record that did okay. Um, So I think in some ways it was it was shocking just because they were bigger than they had ever been. Um, In hindsight it makes all the sense in the world of, of why it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, now the, the Karabi thing, um, I think it was, you know, for, for a lot of fans, it was an interesting choice. And I think everybody was curious to see how it would work out. Um, he was somewhat known for his previous band who weren't huge, but, um, we're on a major label, and if you were sort of into hard rock and metal in the 80s, late 80s, you would have maybe heard them uh, at least once or kind of been familiar with what the band was like. So. And they were called The Scream. Yeah, yep. Not Scream, so, the DC punk band that right. Dave Gold briefly played in. Right. So I think there was, it was intriguing to hear, you know, at first when you listen to that band and then you listen to what sort of Molly Crew was at the time to try to figure out, like, how do you put those two things together? Um, cause it certainly wasn't going to sound like the Vince Neil Motley crew. Cause this, this guy sounds nothing like Vince Neil. <laughs> right. It, it might be the exact opposite in terms of hard rock singers, but, uh, yeah, I think there was some shock and then some curiosity to see where this was going to go. So I want to share some of Luke's thoughts. He said, if I could share one thought about the Motley crew record, um, actually that's not what he said. He said, um, this, is what he, this is what he originally wrote. He said, this is Nikki Six's last stand as an artist. Every Motley after this is a commercial decision. Easily mm-hmm. their best album, perhaps lyrically and d- definitely musically, as stated by Mick Mars and Tommy Lee. Should be in this discussion for not best, but most underrated album of the 90s. At least, at the very least, if this is a divisive album and should make for good podcasting. Mm. Um, and then he said, uh, if I could share one more thought about this Motley Crue record, it's heavier record for them, but I wonder if it's really a reaction to the cultural shift of the nineties on the decade of decadence, greatest hits package. They had a song called primal scream, which you mentioned, which showed a heavier evolution. This was released at the exact same time. as smells like team spirit. 
The self-titled record gets offhandedly dismissed as Motley Crue's attempt at grunge, but it seems like they were headed in that direction before Nirvana blew up. Yep. So those are some thoughts. Uh, let me off the top just say I 100% agree with every point he made. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just putting down the mic and I'm just going to walk away and you can do the rest of the show. <laughs> everything I was going to say, you just said. Well, let's also get in from our Patreon page. Scott Witt, one of our Patreon subscribers, chimed in with this. He said, love this album, uh, with all caps. So he was clearly emphatic about that. He said, after they debu- their debut, this is my favorite. That's interesting. Karabi provided a great boost for the band. People will say this is them going grunge. I disagree. Still has a lot of their swagger in it. Now, that's an interesting... I would have thought that after the debut, which is Too Fast for Love, correct? Yes. That, you know, you got Child of the Devil, which is a really good record. And then you have Dr. Feel Good, which is a good record. I understand that some people consider, like, Girls, Girls, Girls and Theater of Pain to be much thinner records in terms of their quality they're kind of really known for like one or two singles each and then that's yep. about it they're, they're pretty weak records for this yep. to beat out both shout at the devil and um dr feelgood is interesting i think i agree again with that comment really? um i like shout at the devil a lot um i understand i think it's a little bit polarizing for some people in terms of uh, it's definitely metal. It's kind of got a dark spin to it. And I think there's some fans that love it and other fans that are like, yeah, they like more of the pop stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Dr. Feelgood, I think in hindsight is very inconsistent. I think production wise, it sounds incredible, but from a music songwriting standpoint, there's really, there's quite a few turds on that record. I um, did revisit that when I was because I had I was listening to this record a couple times and I was like you know I want to go back and listen to Doctor Feelgood because I haven't listened to that whole record all the way through in a long time. I, I felt like it was pretty strong. Um, maybe it was just having not listened to it in a long time. It was a little. Uh, I, th- I just think compared to Too Fast for Love and Shot the Devil, I, I don't know of any songs on either of those two records that I don't like. Um, and I would put this record in the same boat. I could go through Dr. Feelgood and at least find probably three or four tunes that I'm not crazy about. Um, or best, I don't think hold up very well. Best moment on Dr. Feelgood is when uh, in She Goes Down when the zipper sound uh, appears. Exactly. It's a little It's a little on the nose there, guys. Um, I want to address, though, the, the statements that Luke made about post this album. So I'm not mm-hmm. familiar with Generation Swine. I don't think I've ever listened to that record. Yeah, it's, it's not good. And then after that is, uh, what, New Tattoo? Yep. That was like the sort of comeback record? Uh, that's the record without Tommy Lee. Oh, that's a, is that Samantha Maloney on that record? No, it's... Uh, Did she ever record Randy with Cast- them? No, Randy She's, Castillo plays drums oh, on Randy that record. Castillo. She replaced him when he after he died. Okay. So I think she just toured. So then after New Tattoo, which is 2000, is Saints of Los Angeles. I actually really like that record a lot. I think um, that's mostly due to DJ Ashba. Wasn't he like kind of the songwriter behind a lot of that and like collaborated with Nikki Six 
Uh, I would describe. God, I feel like I'm like Motley Crue fanboy. Uh, <laughs> Saints of Los Angeles is Michael. Uh, I can't remember his name. Some, something Michael. It's the guy from 6 a.m. So basically, at this point, Nikki Six has another band called 6 a.m. He finds this guy who's a great singer and a good songwriter. Motley Crue wants to make a new record. I'm pretty sure he basically wrote a record for them, and then they just played the songs. James so, Michael? James Michael. So, Yeah, they're, they're, James Michael and DJ Ashba are credited on every song on this record. Yeah. It's basically a 6 a.m. record with... Motley Crue's name on it and probably you know Tommy Lee plays drums and they you know Vince Neil sings on it so I mean that's I don't you know I think that's generally my takeaway on that record that's not to say it's not a a good record it's better than several in their catalog I think it it veers closest to the classic Dr. Feelgood sound in terms of its songwriting and Mm mm-hmm well, and here's the thing with them is um, I think this is very similar to the conversation we had about Van Halen 3, mm-hmm. where I think this record we're going to talk about is their last. I mean, this is the record where they became they were a real band like they got John Crabby and they basically went in a rehearsal studio for a year or something and just played every day. You know what I mean? No. BS right. rock star stuff. Like they just got together and wrote songs and just played every every day over and over and over and just kept working and working and working and work their asses off. Right. And I think they like very much like Van Halen three with Eddie Van Halen like pretty much like making that like putting himself out there. I think they very much did that. Like we're committing, you know, we're we're a real band. We're gonna make this John Robbie thing work. This is gonna be our most credible record we're really going to push ourselves and when it wasn't successful i think very much like van halen 3 when that wasn't successful i think that was a huge blow to to them and and i think made them probably step back and say well jesus like what are we doing like now we're not like this is our job now we're not making any money (laughs) we put our you know literally our blood and, and sweat into this record and nobody wants to hear it like forget it you know i i think it just at that point it's just a little bit priority shift and it's like all right we're just going to treat this like a business and i think from that point for, forward kind of like van halen where it's like we're just going to be we're just going to go out and do the tours and get people what they want and i think the records after that pretty much reflect that musically and i think they're most most of them are half-hearted, and I think even Saints of Los Angeles is, considering the amount of you know outside writers and on that record, is you know not a fully committed band. I think all the tours after that were pretty much. I I wasn't interested in seeing them. I mean, mm-hmm. just based on how Vince Neil was, like barely singing. <laughs> like, um, I know a lot of people went to those shows and liked it, but I I just didn't feel like they were really passionate about the band anymore. Tommy Lee started doing, made it pretty clear if you follow him on social media, that he doesn't even really like rock music anymore. <laughs> like, right. And I'm just like, why, why would I go see this band? Like I, I, it's so clear to me that they just don't care. Um, I was kind of surprised that they were able to be successful touring as long as they were based on that. But, uh, anyway, I very much feel that this is a, 
transitional record, I guess you could say, or a a left turn for them where they went all in and it didn't work out. And everything after that was basically a reaction in the opposite direction to say, we're just going to treat this like our job. I'm going to make a statement here. And we're not going to go into like the deep history of Motley Crue because, quite frankly, there's a book you can read called The Dirt <laughs> that could cover the history. Uh, they formed in 81. They broke up. Now, you know, they didn't break up. They went through uh, lineup changes at the beginning. Uh, the main group was Vince Neil, Nikki Six on bass, Mick Mars on guitar, and Tommy Lee on drums. This is the only record that Vince Neil doesn't sing on. Tommy Lee, as Jay mentioned, didn't play drums on New Tattoo. And then they did a farewell tour in 2015, which included like them signing agreement that they would never get back together. And they played their last show on January 31st, New Year's Eve of 2015. Um, and you mentioned the side project that Nikki Six has, 6 a.m. I'm going to make a statement here. Uh, there is an interesting parallel between this band, Motley Crue, and R.E.M. Tell me more. So if you, uh, you look through the history of Motley Crue, Motley Crue, prior to this record, a- after the huge success of Dr. Feelgood and the, new, the Decade of Decadence, uh, greatest hits with another single, Primal Scream, off of that that did well, they signed a $25 million contract with Elektra Records to release like uh, you know whatever number of albums that were covered under yeah. that, under that so they signed a huge deal and then the first record they put out was not with the lead singer that they had and it was not the sound of Dr. Feelgood it wasn't Dr. Feelgood part 2 right REM after the huge successes of you know out of time and automatic for the people um i believe and then monster monster was actually a huge hit when it came out even though now it's in every you know used bin for 25 cents they signed a huge deal i believe with warner brothers mm-hmm. and their first record after that was um new adventures in hi-fi which is a very polarizing record it doesn't have obvious singles there are some singles on it, but then Bill Berry left the band, the longtime drummer, and then they put out, you know, Up and mm-hmm. a bunch of difficult and sort of meandering slower records. And just an interesting parallel that both of these bands, who were huge 80s bands in their own respects mm-hmm. and reached their peaks right at the end of the 80s, both signed huge record deals at the beginning of the 90s and then kind of started to fall apart at that point and record labels never offer huge deals to bands again (laughs) well they do and they don't i mean i think that it's more really now it's more about publishing than yeah people getting hold of people's publishing catalogs so that they can take the music and put it in commercials yeah the actual release of the album is less interesting than how can we market the songs later down the road but we should talk about the um the actual album and what's on it. Cause I have some thoughts. Um, Good. I'm glad you came with some, I did come with some thoughts. So this is, <laughs> I had never listened to the record before. Wow. Yeah. Okay. This is, I, this is interesting. I had maybe heard a single, but I, I maybe thought I heard hooligans holiday. Yeah, that was a single, but, but I got it confused with hooligan by kiss. 
Oh, Jesus. So I thought when I was listening, when I was like, before I was listening to it, I was thinking of that song in my head. Like, yep. I'm a hooligan. What is it? I won't go to school again. Uh, yeah. Are those the lyrics? So I thought that was the song. And then I oh, listened God. to it. I'm like, oh, this isn't that song. That's a kiss song. Good I'm grief, Tim. Oh, man. We need to, I need to have some side lessons with you. <laughs> So I, I listened to this record a lot to prep for this. And I'll admit, the first couple times I listened to it, I was like, huh, I'm not sure I get this. Hmm. Um, but I started to get into the lyrics a little bit more and and j- listen to the individual playing. And yeah. I, I think some of the things that I picked up that I liked was, um, and I only learned this in, in doing some reading, is that Karabi was actually a guitar player too. Yeah. So he was able to... And you can hear it in the in the guitars. He was able to free up Mick Mars a little bit, so that Mick mm-hmm. Mars isn't just playing rhythm throughout the whole record. In the same way that like a lot of four pieces where the lead singer would just be singing and that would be it, and then the guitar player kind of has to hold down all the guitar yep. rhythm parts. There's a lot more um, of Mick Mars doing. Uh, uh, not accents, but uh, he's he's playing off of what John Karabi's doing as the rhythm player, as opposed yep. to having to carry that stuff. So there's there's an interesting interplay between their guitar stuff on a lot of the songs. Um, obviously, John Karabi has a much better voice than Vince Neil. You know, Vince Neil's got the helium, classic '80s metal singer voice. Yeah. Karabi's is much huskier, uh, stronger voice. You can tell he's singing from his chest. I mean, uh-huh. He's just got he's just got a big, burly voice, and it works really well throughout the record. In terms of, um, you know, if they replaced him with a, a Neil Young, Neil Young, a Vince Neil clone, <laughs> Neil Young would have been interesting. Yeah, that would have been interesting. If they had replaced him with somebody who sounded like Vince Neil, it, it kind of yeah. would have been a disaster. I think. Right, and I think that's that's to my earlier point about. When Vince Neil left, you're like, huh? And then when they said he was going to replace him, it was more of like, well, that's unexpected. Like, I think everybody was expecting them just to go find the next Vince Neil. And when they didn't, it was, I think it it kind of, right away, most fans went right to the Van Halen comparison. Like, oh, wow. Okay. This is going to be like what Van Halen did, like completely reinvent themselves with this totally new singer and and new voice, which is going to lead them in a whole new direction to, you know success bigger success than they even had before right and that it, and that didn't happen like the success part didn't. so here's what i had trouble with and you can refute me or, or agree with me uh there i definitely heard the strains of trying to emulate some of those quote-unquote grunge bands that were becoming popular in terms of allison chains and Soundgarden and stuff like that i, I think an example of that is um, Uncle Jack, track two. And it's not the entire song. When you get to like the last minute of the song, which is completely unnecessary, it just goes into like this Alice in Chains like halftime part. It's just yeah. instrumental for no reason.
And there are a lot of songs that are way too long. My major complaint with this record is you don't, on a 12 song record, I think there's like three songs under five minutes. Everything else is over five minutes. These should be, these should have been edited. That's, that's my, my biggest issue is that there's just a lot of putzing around here. And I know they, it's like they had a new toy and they wanted to try it out and play as much as possible with the two guitars. But I don't understand, like, why is Hooligan's Holiday almost six minutes? That's a single. It should be, like, four minutes. And I really like that song. It's got a cool, yeah. cool like, swagger to it. Um, the chorus is different. It's, like, inverted from the verse in terms of it's, it's quieter in a way. There's just, like, they're just hitting chords and letting them ring. Mm-hmm. A, so I don't understand why they extended so much of this record in terms of its length of each of the songs because i think that that's to me is like the one of the issues that probably hurt it 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 actually did well all around the world united states is like the only place that it didn't chart well Mm -hmm. so definitely connected with people but yeah yeah i mean i think the length to me has always been indicative of um they were just they weren't I, 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 I don't think it's contrived at all. I, I think they, and this is why I get a little bit, I get a little annoyed with like any band who made a record in the nineties who existed before the nineties, the, the statement that gets thrown on whatever material they made during that era is usually, they were trying to be grunge. Yes. Some of them tried to, to fit in with the times. Some of them were genuinely inspired by the music they heard. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and they get like, treated like some kind of like terrible people for that, which I I don't agree with at all. I think it's, I think some of these bands, and this is why I want to occasionally go back to some of these records, because I think there's somewhere, you know, these were guys who, um, or, or, or guys and girls who sort of made a lot of money and became rock stars. And at some point, um, you know, you you can sing about that lifestyle for so long, and then at some point, you run out of things to sing about. You know, right? And I think some of them, like in this case, said, "Wow, you know, there's so much great new music out, and like totally inspired to to think about things in different ways and try different stuff." And um, I think for them, they looked at Vince Neil and probably said, "Well, sh- we can't do that with him." Like, what is he going to say? You know, what kind of lyrics are he, is he going to write? Or what kind of lyrics can I write for him? Yeah, I was under the impression that he didn't write any lyrics. Right. So it's like, what, you know, what do we do with that? So and Anthrax did the same thing with um, Joey Belladonna. You know, they went with John Bush for a while because it was the same kind of situation between the type of voice they had and the type of music they wrote. They just, it didn't make any sense. Like, you couldn't you couldn't do Uncle Jack with, with Vince Neil. No. Like... That's that you know. It's not lyrically is a little on the nose, but I mean, it's real. That that you know, it's a true story that John Karabi wrote. Um, in that lyric, Vince Neil could have never pulled that off. You know, so I think they were inspired to not only musically to, you know, push themselves and try new things, but also lyrically, like to write songs that were actually about real stuff and had substance to them, and not just always about partying. Um, so. You know, 
I, I, in hindsight, I mean, I think it was completely the right decision to make. I think the songs are long because I think it was a band that was like really inspired by what was going on. And they had this new guy and they just buckled down and acted like they were 18 years old again and just locked themselves in, you know, in a rehearsal space and just started writing music and didn't really worry about, you know, well, what's the single going to be and let's go in the studio and demo it and then cut it down and then rewrite it. And let's bring somebody in to bring, you know, to get a hook. And they did that stuff after, once they gave up on being like creative and just said, screw it, we're going to be the band everybody wants and just make money. Um, so I think that's why the material is longer. You know, you know, we were a band, you know, it's tough. Sometimes you get in a groove and it's fun to play the song and you fall in love with the way that it is. And when you go to record it, you know, you're not going to cut. It becomes difficult to cut two minutes off of a song that you've played in a garage for a year. Um, so I think that's why some of this stuff is longer. I, I just enjoy that cause I enjoy the playing. Um, but I could see coming to the record now, it, you know, feeling a little, a little bloated. Um, yeah. Cause it, like on a song like poison apples, I, it feels like that's the right length for that song and it's, it's the right vibe. And I, I like his lyrics on in that song. They're, you know, um, self-referential and smart without being you know silly That's one of the few on the record I think Vince Neil could have pulled off. I don't I don't know that it would have been as good, but you could No, it wouldn't have been as good. It has the feel, it has the energy of a Dr. Feel Goody, you know, rocker and Right. He could have pulled off those lyrics, but it's one of the few on the record, I think, that's um concise like that and, and you know, harkens very much to the to that Dr. Feel Good era band. See, and then on the flip side, like, with you talking about whether it's inspiration or I guess the other word would be calculation, a song like Smoke the Sky, like, where they're clearly using, like, a drop D riff um, or drop D tuning for the for that riffing, like, that to me, like, it, it just, it doesn't sound like it, it doesn't sound inspired. Like, it just sounds like we're gonna play in drop D because that's what bands are doing right now. I, I I like this band better when they're not trying to sound like that. Like when they like Hooligan Holiday to me is and Misunderstood. Those are like songs that you can hear that influence, but it's not completely going all the way over yeah. to copycat. Yeah, I mean, Smoke the Sky sounds like to me. It sounded like Kickstart My Heart with a drop D riff. Like drum wise and chorus wise, it 
it has that feel of kickstart my heart but the whole thing's based around a tuned down riff i mean the whole record's tuned down um but i i, I agree there's songs where i think when um actually when they use both guitars you know when they re- really let karabi play a counter Mm-hmm. Or provide the rhythm and have McMars play a counter, and, you, and it turns into a true two guitar band. I think it's for the better, especially on a song like um, uh, which one is it? I think it's misunderstood. Has that this like weird like mandolin or something? Yeah, there's, it? Like a, there's a mandolin in it. It sounds so cool. Like I, I didn't when I originally listened to the record a long time ago. I, I didn't really pick up on it, but now when I listen to it. Um, I can hear what's going on and such a cool texture and idea because it elevates that you know, pretty heavy riff into something, I don't know, like totally different. I think the slide stuff works anytime they go to the slide guitar oh yeah riff, it works really well um the drums the drumming on this record it's phenomenal like there are so many drum parts on here that to go back to our uh our uh school of fish um review where the the beat could, you know is fairly could be fairly straightforward but he adds so much feel and like just cool feels and accents and like unexpected little bits here and there that it just keeps it interesting. Even some of these, I mean, the tempos are pretty slow, yeah, um, which is always the most challenging kind of song to pull off on drums. And the drums sound huge. Um, this album still sounds really, really sonically really good. Like you can crank it. It sounds big, you know, when you play it quiet, but when you crank it, it's still, you know, it doesn't get all well, it's, compressed. The the drums, if you A-B them with the drums on <laughs> Dr. Feelgood, it's the same drummer. They just sound completely different. I mean, that's just, you know, yep. it's got a ton of reverb on Dr. Feelgood. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's these are very clean and sharp drums in comparison. Yeah, which is interesting because it's the same producer, Bob Rock, on both. Yeah, so it's clearly you know the band was probably involved in shaping the sound. Yeah, I mean, I'm revisiting it. It it holds up pretty well for me. Um, it's a little difficult because I listened to it so much when it came out. Um, uh, so it's difficult to separate myself. Um, how did you feel about like? I mean, they do try to do the the ballad, their interpretation of the ballad is for, for a mid '90s record um, with "Love Shine" a little bit, and then "Drift Away." 
Um, what were your takes on those tunes? I, I like Drift Away better than Love Shine. Um, Love Shine was fine. It's only two and a half minutes long. So I almost thought of it as like a, almost like a bridge track, if, any, if anything. They're fine. They they kind of feel a little bit out of place on this record. Um, just because if you're comparing it in terms of stylistic choices and inspirations, uh, you know, those bands didn't have power ballads with acoustic guitars like like these songs. Um, I, I think like the closest would be like Pearl Jam's Black would be the closest thing to a to a power ballad from a from a you know an early '90s grunge band. Um, Nirvana certainly didn't do it, and you know those bands all stayed away. Didn't, not that they stayed away from slow songs, but they definitely stayed away from the ballad style. So, it, they're a little bit. I think if I was, um, you know, re-editing the record, I don't know that I'd have either of those songs on there, as it stands, because they're both on the shorter side. It doesn't necessarily bother me that they're on there. But uh, it definitely felt like a little, like they were a little bit aged. Yeah, I'd agree. One thing I, I really appreciated on the on the revisiting it was that um, recently John Crabby did some press um, around this record because he uh, went out and toured it with his own band, basically mm-hmm. uh, conceding Motley Crue was never going to play any of these songs. So he said, "To hell with it, I'm going to go out and." do it myself one of the things that just he had talked about was um his influences which was interesting because at the time it didn't they didn't really come through to me um but uh so he you know claimed aerosmith as a huge uh influence and uh, uh, when i heard him say that i was like okay i kind of get it but then i thought about it, i was like well i don't th- i don't know that i get it so when i went back and listened to the record um I can hear it now. I can hear it in that he does like the Steven Tyler riffing. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Hooligans Holiday, you know, that like that kind of like basically a, a guitar riff, but he does it with the vocal, you know, um, and there's a lot of points on the record where he he does that kind of thing. And it it I could totally make the connection and appreciate now like that he was coming from a very, very much coming from a seventies, you know, a classic seventies hard rock v- vibe. Um, I think, you know, some of the band may have been more looking at contemporary Dallas and chains or whatnot, but I think throughout this record, like he genuinely didn't give a shit about any of those bands. Like he was to him, I think was resurrecting Aerosmith <laughs> into a much heavier, you know, modern, uh, monster, um, which is kind of cool to think about and listen to, and pay attention to when you when you listen to it. Yeah, I I I got that he has a much uh, more traditional rock. I don't even know if traditional is the right word, but throwback style in terms of his vocal, um, and that probably. I don't know. I, I don't. It, maybe that comes from him being able to write some of the lyrics and him being able to like figure out his cadence. Whereas, you know, not that Vince Neil back in the day 
couldn't deliver lines. Now he can't, but it wasn't the same way. No. It wasn't the same no. bursts that John Karabi can. And I even think on a song like Welcome to the Numb, I mean, that uh, uh, musically now when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, shit, this is like, this is classic Aerosmith. I mean, this is like Sweet Emotion or, you know, that kind of heavy groove to like syncopated guitar parts, bluesy. At the time, I, I don't know. I it did not. I was a fan of Aerosmith. I was a fan of this band. I didn't make the connection, but now when I listen to it, it makes total sense to me. So, again, uh, you know, yes, there are some drop D riffs on here, which I think anytime we've reviewed a record where those are featured, it's mm-hmm. they typically don't age well just because it was so done, mm-hmm. especially at, I mean, at, after this point. I mean, it was another, I mean, we're still hearing them. 20 years later or whatever it is so it's difficult for those to hold up lot of the material um is much more than that and uh, the stuff where it goes more in that 70s aerosmith kind of vibe i really appreciate a lot more now than i did then so jay uh this might be a silly question but uh were the album better ep or decent single come on man like i can't get the those riffs out of my head from Hooligan's Holiday. Like I listened to that song, you know, a couple times. I'm a hooligan. To myself. No, no, no. I the won't verse riffs. Go to fool again. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <Not> that. <laughs> the verse riffs. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 I love this record. Um, you know, it. I liked it at the time. I haven't listened to it in a long time. Uh, revisiting it, I would say that it is maybe the best hard rock. I don't, I don't like to call it metal because I think metal is a whole other thing. Right. Honestly, I agree. I would call this hard rock. I would say this is possibly the best hard rock record of the 90s. Hmm. Interesting. I'd be, I, I would, I would enjoy a, you know, a, a debate around that topic, but, uh, I'm having a hard time thinking of a pure hard rock record that is better than this one from the 90s. Well, maybe some of our listeners can chime in with what they think might be the best hard rock record. So I'm, I'm guessing then you would put like, so Pantera would be in the metal. That's metal, yeah. Okay. And... Um, th- Thinking either classic stuff, you know, ACDC, anything they did in the 90s, or anything when did like the Razor's Edge come out. Was that 89? Or was that may it... have been, was yeah, it... that was that was like 89. Okay, 90s would have been well, the one that we reviewed was Subhuman Race by um Skid Row. Yeah, I think this is better than that. 
We also did the Corrosion of Conformity album, or one of them. Um, was it Deliverance that we did? Yep, that that's a really good record too. I I would probably say that's metal. Okay, so that's metal. Okay, I'm just trying to get the where the lines are so our listeners know. know where. It's a fine line between metal and hard rock. <laughs> it is. So people out there in the uh, podcast listening audience, tell us what you might think the best hard rock record. Is it Motley Crue's self-titled album from 1994? Or is it something else? I- I'll say that I-, I do think this is a worthy record. I think I'd be at like 12 songs, or excuse me, like 10 songs. Like I said, I, I would be cool with dropping off like Love Shine and-, and Drift Away. There are some unreleased tracks that have been re- released with the or have been released with the re-release uh, right. that you can listen to on Spotify or if you buy one of the re-releases um, you can check those out one's called Hypnotized and then another one's called Living in the Know which I didn't I didn't get that familiar with them because I knew they weren't um, uh, they were yeah they're not as good Hypnotized sounds like maybe an older more traditional Motley Crue song that they just had John Crowby sing on mm-hmm um, I mean, they're they're interesting lessons, but you can quickly see why they weren't on the record, right? Um, I don't, I uh, I regret that uh, that they didn't follow through with this. You know, I realize it was probably devastating. They expected you know this to be their fifty one fifty, and it wasn't. But just thinking about if they would have committed to it long term and just said we're reinventing ourselves, we're going to build ourselves back up, music's changed. You know, we're just going to, you know, stick with this and make it work. I think they would eventually connect with people and and would have maybe found a new level of credibility that they could never get back to with just phoning it in again with Vince Neil. Interesting. Maybe, Tommy Lee, maybe Tommy Lee would still want to play drums. and Maybe not be a hip-hop artist. Vicky <laughs> Six would want to be in the band and not start another band and... Um, oh, and I feel like we, I had to mention before we leave that um, over the years, um, McMars has always talked about how much he likes this record and how he liked working with John Crabby, and they're actually working it together again. Oh. McMars is doing a solo record, and John Crabby is singing. Well, that'll be interesting. Yep. Very nice. I did reach out to John Crabby. I did not hear back. So, say la vie. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And, of course, if you want to join the conversation with us, head on over to patreon.com backslash digmeout, where you can join for as little as a buck a month, help support the podcast, and get access to previews of episodes, bonus content, contests, including the one that we're currently running for the double vinyl failure record, The Heart is a Monster, all you have to do is be subscribed to the Patreon page before April 30th, midnight, Eastern Standard Time, and you are entered into the contest to win that record. One winner to rule them all. I, I don't want to get sued for that, so that was obviously uh, an homage to uh, Lord of the Rings. For Jay? I, I didn't hear you. I was listening to Uncle Jack. Okay. For J- <laughs> Far be it for me to interrupt your enjoyment of listening <laughs> to that record. 
Can, can we wrap this up already? Yeah. I want to go back and listen to it. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.